Chapter 8 Might Have Been or Maybe Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? John 11:37. Jesus wept. That doesn't mean that he shed a tear or two, but that his tears flowed freely. That is the meaning gained from the original word. Jesus wept profusely and continuously until all who observed him knew that he was deeply affected. His tears were the suitable expression of his intense emotion. Love made him weep. Nothing else ever compelled him to tears. I do not find that all the pains he endured, even when scourged or when fastened to the cruel tree, produced a single tear from him. But for love's sake, Jesus wept. At first I feel inclined to say, See how he wept. Then I stop myself, borrow my language from the bystanders, and I say, See how he loved him. John 11:36. Even with their unfriendly eyes, the Jews recognized that his tears were drawn from him by love alone. From this rock of our salvation, no rod except that of love could bring forth floods of water. So when we have noticed the tears and the power of love that brought forth the tears, let us observe that tears are an expression of His love toward us. When you look upon your children with love, your eyes flash with joy. When they are in health and strength, your love expresses itself properly in delight in them. But with Christ, love toward us most properly shows itself in tears. When He thinks of what we are, how we have become subject to death, and how sin has brought us under this bondage, He must weep because He loves us. Even more, He must die, for even His tears cannot suffice to demonstrate His love. Jesus must pour out His soul, not only unto tears, but unto death, so that all may see how deeply He loves us. I want to begin this section with that thought deeply fixed upon our spirits. If we are indeed the people of God, then Jesus loves us, and He loves us unto tears. Since we see how He loved Lazarus when Lazarus was dead and in the tomb, let us now see how He loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. See how He loves us even though our spirits might be dull and dead, and how He will love us even when we come to die. Scripture, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. Psalm 116, 15. He loves us in such a way that He will love us when we die, even as He loved Lazarus at the grave's mouth. Let us turn away from our preface which we have found in the context, and look at the text itself. While there were some who thought only of the love of Christ when they saw His tears, there were others standing by who were more full of reasoning, and who wondered, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? John 11:37. Looking at the text from different perspectives, I see a vain argument, a vile argument. A fair argument, and if read in connection with the verses that follow it, 
a full and faithful argument. First, I see in the text a vain argument. It is an argument about what might have been if such and such a thing had been. It's a very common thing to hear people talk this way. If this would have happened, then that might have occurred. Such talk is always vain and foolish, because it doesn't lead to any practical result. What was the use of saying, If Jesus had been here, then Lazarus would not have died, when Lazarus was already dead? The thing is done, and it cannot be undone. What's the use of asking about what once might have been, but now cannot be? Yet I have seen strange sorrows twisted out of these suppositions. Sometimes the bitterest griefs that people know do not come from facts, but from things they imagine might have been. That is to say, they dig wells of supposition and drink the bitter waters of regret. The sisters of Lazarus did this. Each one said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John 11, 21, 32. In a more unbelieving way, the Jews asked, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Yes, and so you say, If I had gone to so-and-so, this would not have happened, and then the other might have happened, and a third thing probably would have occurred, and then how different it would have been from what it is now. You blame yourself for steps that were not only innocent, but were wise and right. But now that you see the consequences of them, you begin to imagine that they were not innocent, not wise, and not right, and you regret that you took such steps. I have known some go a great deal further than vainly accusing themselves. They have even accused God. They say, Why was moral evil allowed into the world? Why were men and women made as they are? Couldn't God, who is omnipotent, have arranged things so that there would have been no sin and no sorrow? What a big mess we get into once we begin arguing over those points and supposing what might have been under other circumstances. You see, dear friends, these things will not be, and they cannot be. Therefore, what good does it do to worry over what is not and what cannot be? I will plow, but if there is not a field, I hope you will excuse me. I will not plow the sea or the mist. I will get to work on anything that is practical, but I will not break my heart over daydreams. If it is to be done, and if it is right to do, then let's get to it at once. But if it cannot be done, now, but is only something that might have been, then let us leave it alone. You can go to the might have beens, but I have better work to do. This was David's method regarding his child, and it should be yours regarding all your sick ones, as well as those who have already departed. David fasted, prayed, and cried to God as long as his child was alive. But when his child was dead, he washed his face and ate bread, saying, Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 2 Samuel 12:23 It is done and cannot be undone. What is the use of worrying about it now? Oh, that you would have grace to leave this foolish chopping of logic with yourself and providence using your reason for something better. Lazarus is dead. 
What's the use of saying that he might not have died if Jesus had been there? Another reason that this is a vain argument is because even though we ask about what might have been, and we consider it until we begin to think that it should have been, unbelief will still never get an explanation about it from the Lord. In this chapter of the Bible, there is no explanation given to the Jews of why Jesus, who was able to open the eyes of the blind man and was able to prevent Lazarus from dying, did not keep him from dying. An explanation was given by the Lord to his disciples by his assurance that it was for the glory of God. That explanation you will get. You have received it already. If you are God's child and he has denied to you what you think he could have given you, or if he has permitted you to suffer under a calamity that you think he could have averted, he will give you no other explanation than the one he gives you now without any pressure at all that it is for His glory. If it is for His glory, is it not for your advantage? What can more profit a servant than the glory of his master? What can more profit our loving hearts than to see God glorified? If you are not satisfied with that answer, do not expect any other. Why have I been bereaved of my children? Why have I been sick for so many years? Why did I fail when I hoped to be successful? Why did I not do well in pursuing a college education? It is a useless piece of business to demand the reasons for unavoidable trials. It is mere dreaming to guess what would have been if something else had happened. Scripture, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. John 13, 7 be content with that. This is also a vain argument because it cannot benefit you to try to look into that which the Lord has hidden from you. You are promoting self-conceit in judging God's providence. You are practically sitting upon a throne and making God the prisoner at your judgment seat. You are considering again what He has already determined in the scale of His wisdom. This will never do. A childlike spirit is infinitely healthier and infinitely holier than the spirit of questioning. Brothers, we should not even desire to know all the things that are, for if it is the glory of God to conceal something, let it be concealed. As for the things that might have been, what have we to do with them? If we begin lifting up these curtains, we cannot tell what we may one day see. I have known people intrude into this sphere until at last they have stumbled on a horror that they were never intended to see, and which indeed they never would have seen if their own unholy imaginations had not created it for themselves. They were ambitious to change the ways of God and to change the times and seasons that God had ordained, and at last they fell into such a dismal condition that if they were not completely insane, they would have been happier if they had been, for there is a state of mind bordering on insanity that still has a guilt about it, and is therefore worse than if responsibility had been destroyed. I will beg you, therefore, brethren, to abstain from trying to look into those secret things that belong to God only. Deuteronomy 29.29. It is beneficial for you to abstain from such speculations. 
Don't talk about what might have been or should have been, interfering with the good that God has given you by yearning after what He has denied. Oh, if you could know as He knows, and then love as He loves, you would act as He acts. Believe in Him, sit still at His feet, and do not talk any more about what He could have done or might have done or what you think He should have done, lest evil come of it. Second, I see in the text a vile argument. I believe these Jews intended a kind of evil argument against the Christ of God. They put it this way, This man says that he opened the eyes of the blind, and all the people think that he did. But if he did so, why would he not keep his friend, whom he evidently loved, from dying? Either he lacks power, which will prove that he did not open the eyes of the blind after all, but that it was a hoax, or else, if he has such power and doesn't use it for his friend, he does not love him, and these tears are a mere show. He could have saved this man's life, and now he stands here and weeps because he's dead. Thus the adversary desired to put those who believe in our Lord upon the horns of a dilemma. We are not gored by either horn, for we know a way of escape. Still you see the intent, and this is often the pattern of Satan's arguments. Your brother, your mother, your child, your friend, they are dead. You called to Jesus, you cried to God, you begged for the precious life, yet they are dead. Well then, there must have been a lack of power on the part of God to save life. Maybe your conversion, in which you have rejoiced, and of which you have said, One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see, John 9.25, maybe that was not a work of divine power after all, but was only a delusion. He who saved your soul could have saved the life of your beloved, and as he did not do so, does he have any power at all, and have you ever seen his power in your own life? You see the pattern of the misleading reasoning. Is it not a vile argument? Let us unveil the falsehood of it. Suppose that Jesus is willing to open the eyes of the blind, and that he does open them. Is he therefore obligated to raise this particular dead man? If he doesn't see fit to do so, does that prove that he doesn't have the power to do so? If he lets Lazarus die, is that proof that he could not have saved his life? Could there not be some other reason? Does the omnipotent God always exert his power? Does he ever exert all his power? Could there not be some great reason why Christ would open the eyes of the blind and yet not step in to prevent the death of Lazarus? We can see that there could be many such reasons. But it's easy, when you want to argue against Christ and the gospel, to forget much. You can shut your eyes where it is inconvenient to see, and then you can rush on blindly like a mad bull. On the other hand, they might say, If Christ can prevent Lazarus from dying, and he doesn't do so, there is a lack of love in him. Is that true? Is that a fair argument? It's not true as a matter of fact, nor will it be thought to be true by our faith. It might be infinite love that wounds, chastens, and afflicts. There is as much love in the Father when he uses the rod of correction 
as when he gives the kiss of affection. There is as much love in the Saviour when he allows Lazarus to die as when he raises Lazarus from the grave. Yes, and it is possible that the less pleasing deed can be the one more greatly filled with love. The greatest blessings come to us in the form of sorrows. I wouldn't wonder if the death of Lazarus resulted in the passing of Lazarus into a higher state of spiritual life than he had ever known before. I do not doubt that he was a converted man before his death, but certainly that wonderful passing into the region of death and coming back again must have given him such a vivid consciousness of the power of Christ that the spiritual life within him must have become more strong, more clear, and more supreme than it had ever been before. I would have liked to have met that man after he had been raised from the dead by him who said, I am the resurrection and the life. I think he could have preached from that text very wonderfully. He would have understood it by an experience unknown to us. I would think that Lazarus rose into the higher life in the very highest degree, and so it was Christ's love to Lazarus that let Lazarus die and it was a completely wicked misrepresentation to say that Lazarus died because Jesus had a lack of love toward him. It is Christ's love that has let some of you be sick and poor. It is Christ's love that has allowed you to be despised and downtrodden. It is Christ's love that has let you remain in affliction, because the divine benefit that has come from it is more to your profit than the affliction itself could ever be to your loss. So the vile argument may well be driven away, whatever shape it takes in our minds. There is no justification for us not to trust what God has done for us in the way of grace. It has been real and was no dream. There is no justification for any doubt as to what God can do for us and will do for us in the future. He who has helped us so far will help us to the end. He who has done so much for us will withhold no good thing from us psalm 84:11 but will give to us all that is needful for this life and godliness second peter 1:3 and for the life to come and glory romans 8:18 8, 1st timothy 4:8 third i see in the text a very fair argument If you take the text and press the animosity out of it, it's true. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Yes, it is true. Jesus Christ, by what he has done, has proved his power to do anything. I don't need to expand upon the point, but I will briefly mention it. There's not a life that he cannot preserve. You may cry to him about your sick ones. You are permitted to do so. Even if the physician has given up hope, I counsel you to go to Jesus about them, even though it's far better to go to Jesus before you consult the physician. We often make a mistake about the use of medicines by using medicine first. We should go to the Lord first, so that we can be guided as to what medicine and method should be used, and we should trust in God to bless the means made use of for healing and restoration. We can make idols out of physicians, as much as the heathen make idols out of blocks of wood. Medicines are proper enough in their place for healing. 
just as bread is good for nourishment. But just as people cannot live by bread alone, Matthew 4, 4, so they are not healed by medicine alone. Before we eat bread, we should ask God's blessing on that bread. Let us also seek a blessing on medicines whenever we use them. We are not healed by the physician, but by that God who works according to His own will and pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Let us then believe that the Christ who has done this and that for other sick people can do the same for those whom we bring to Him, and let us leave their cases in His hands. Now look at the text spiritually. I want you to believe that Christ can preserve us spiritually from death. Are we forced by our employment into the society of the ungodly? Does providence call some of you working people to labor side by side or even at the same bench with wicked unbelievers? The Lord Jesus can keep you from being harmed by them. He can give you spiritual health and strength, even when you seem to be under the most deadly influences. He who opened your eyes when you were blind can keep you alive now that you can see. Trust in Him for your final perseverance with the same unquestioning faith with which you trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sin. I say again that He who opened your eyes when you were in darkness can keep you from death even if the deadliest influences from the world, the flesh, and the devil would be set in operation against you. Because He lives, you will live also. John 14.19 Run to Him in the time of your temptation. Cry to Him in the hour of your need. He will help you and deliver you. You will not die, but will live and declare the works of the Lord. Psalm 118.17 Beloved, what mercy it is that we can look back upon Christ's having opened the blind man's eyes and see the same thing in ourselves. Here is a blind man whose eyes Christ opened. It is you. He was able to give you sight, and can you not make the same claim to others? If the Lord Jesus Christ could give you sight, He can give sight to others. If He opened your blind eyes, He can open the blind eyes of your children, your unconverted father, your unsaved brothers, and your unsaved sisters. Believe that God can open the eyes of your friends and cry to God about them. Take the text at once and read it like this, Could not this man who opened my blind eyes open the blind eyes of those about whom my heart is heavy? Remember that the man who was blind, whose eyes Christ opened, was born blind. Christ can deal with original sin and natural sin. Some seem to have inherited a nature that is more wild than common. Their heart does not appear to be a heart of flesh, but a heart of stone. Yet Jesus, who dealt with this man who was blind from his birth, can deal with those strange sinners, those sinners of a scarlet color, who develop a more desperate viciousness in their lives than you see in others. Christ can deal with the most wicked sinners. Take them to Him. Believe on account of them, and be fully convinced that no case is beyond the power of the living Saviour. As for me, I never can or will 
despair of the salvation of one of my fellow creatures now that I am myself saved. I know that there were certain traits in my character and certain elements in my temperament that make my conversion to Christ more remarkable than that of the conversion of many others, and so I will have hope concerning the most blasphemous, the most obstinate, and the most unbelieving people. This glorious man, who, in the days of his flesh, opened the eyes of one born blind, a thing that had never been known before, Mark 2, 12, can come and deal with the very chief of sinners. He can deal with sinners who are dead in sin and who lie rotting in their sinful pleasures, and he can make them to be saints. This is a fair argument. I am sure it is. Lastly, there is a full and faithful argument from the text. All they said was that this man, who has opened the eyes of one born blind, could have prevented Lazarus from dying. That was a fair argument, but it was not a full argument. It never occurred to them to go further and ask, Now that Lazarus is dead, cannot this man raise him from the dead? The first piece of argument did not go far enough to provide any comfort, because it only dealt with what might have been and what could not be. I am afraid that a great deal of our religion is of that kind. What mercy it would be if God would give some Christians two cents worth of common sense! Oh, if some people could only believe what I am sure is true, that the true Christian religion is sanctified common sense! that the religion of Jesus Christ is just as practical as if our life were to be spent in running a business. True, it is spiritual and divine, heavenly and sublime, but it is as accurate as if we were to be nothing but mathematicians, calculating and estimating all our days. There is a mathematical truthfulness about our holy faith as well as a lofty, eagle-winged ambition. Therefore, they should have argued like this. Jesus Christ, who opened this blind man's eyes, has come to a corpse in its grave, and he is able to make it live. Friend, is there laid upon your mind at this time some poor sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins? You cannot get at him. You don't know how to make him feel or think. There doesn't seem to be a vital spark anywhere about him and you don't know how to deal with him. Believe that the gospel is meant for such a case as this, and that the living God in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit can meet with this stone-cold dead heart. Oh, it's worse than that, you say. It is worse than that. The person I'm thinking of is put out of society and is too corrupt to be spoken with. Yes, I know what you mean. Maybe you're speaking of a fallen woman. We are always more eager to bury the fallen women than the fallen men. A man of whom we must say with Martha, By this time there will be a stench, John 11.39, may still be tolerated in society. But if it happens to be a woman who sins, they cry, Bury her out of sight, roll the stone to the mouth of the tomb, we will never speak to her or mention her. If you have concern in your soul about a person who is shut out from society in this way, I want you to believe that Jesus can bring out the buried and corrupt. Oh, you say, 
but it's not just that the person I'm thinking of is buried away, but the situation is really one that cannot be described. He's been dead four days. He has gone so far that his crime cannot even be mentioned. I know the case, yet you can still mention it before the Lord. No harm will come of it in his presence. I don't read in the gospel narrative of anybody being bothered by the odor when the sepulchre of Lazarus was opened. When Jesus said, Remove the stone, he knew that he had divine disinfectants ready at hand. He knew what he did. When you seek after flagrant sinners, prudent people say, Well, if you go after such people as that, your own character will be tarnished before long. The Lord will prevent any harm coming from it, for he can speak to the most corrupt sinner and say, Live, and he will live. Then the corruption is no more. Therefore, let us drive out of our minds the idea that any sinner is too far gone for Christ to save him. I used to hear in my youth about a day of grace and about people having passed that day of grace, but I don't believe it. As long as you are in this world, I am told to preach to you, for the gospel message is to be proclaimed to every creature, and I dare not draw empty distinctions about a day of grace. If you have a disease that will carry you off before midnight tonight, I still urge you to believe in Christ and live. If you are so bad in your own opinion that there never lived a worse man or a worse woman outside of hell, I still plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ. My Lord loves to save great sinners, just as He delighted to bring from the grave the long-dead Lazarus so that he could be received into the arms of his family to be the joy of the house and the glory of Christ. I have not gone too far. I am sure that I have not. No, I couldn't go too far. The sureless, bottomless love of my great Lord. I wish I had the tongues of men and angels to tell of it. You have not sinned beyond his power to save you. He is a great Saviour and a mighty Saviour, and His precious blood can remove all your death and corruption. When I think of those whom He has saved, I argue, could not my Lord Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind, make these dead sinners live? I'll tell you something else. If you are that dead sinner, I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. I can't believe, someone says, for I'm dead. I know that you are, but if the Lord speaks to you, you will live, and He does speak to you through this voice of mine. I speak to you in His name. You careless sinner, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, consider your ways. You dead sinner, in the name of Jesus, live. His Spirit has gone forth with the word that I have spoken. The thing has already been done in some who have heard me. The spiritually dead have been brought to life, and it will be done in others who will read or hear these words. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, for ever and ever. Amen.